you know, I, I read what uh, you know, Milton Friedman had to say at the time, and I couldn't see the driving force behind it. I, I could see how the equations worked. I couldn't see how the cause and effect worked, so to speak. And that was the big issue. So I, I wasn't particularly happy with that. As part of my reading, you know, I, I read um, you know, Adam Smith's Wealth and Decent and so forth, and I quite liked what, what Smith had to say generally. I know he's generally thought of as a, a rather a right-wing writer, but um, when you actually read it, the thing I always think with Adam Smith is that the problem isn't so much Smith himself, it's his fans. He's a lot less right-wing than they are. Um, you know, it, it does become apparent when you actually read what he has to say as opposed to, uh, you know, what, as I say, his, his fans generally have to say. Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Derek Ross on the basics of Georgism and its relationship to MMT. Derek's a Nova Scotia resident who's been a chorus member in theatrical productions for four decades in shows such as The Pirates of Penzance by Gilbert and Sullivan. He and his wife also run A Bed and Breakfast. Derek was especially helpful in providing feedback for an introductory presentation I developed early this year. Although unfortunately the presentation never came together, it has many valuable concepts and analogies I still use today. Derek and I met in the Facebook group Intro to MMT, which is very busy and has more than 6,000 people, and for which I'm a moderator. Derek first discovered Georgism and later the work of Steve Keen, which ultimately led him to MMT. A main insight of Georgism is that taxing land is a much more elegant way to make a system that's both fair and more difficult to exploit. Although humans can manipulate and destroy buildings, they can't eliminate the land those buildings are on. As an example, I have a friend who's a general contractor. He tore down an old house and built a new one for his daughter. However, he left one wall in the old building standing which prevented it from being legally considered as new construction, thereby avoiding extra fees and newer regulations. Land as defined by Georgism is not just the earth, but conceptual, like internet URLs and the bandwidth for television, radio, and cell phones. Taxes, or rents on that land, can be paid with money, such as interest for a bank loan or taxes for living in a country. They can also be paid with not money, such as by having to provide a certain amount of labor to the king each year or a percentage of the harvest. Going beyond Georgism, physics makes it clear that the most fundamental resource is energy. Resources and we are essentially forms of energy. In addition, all energy requires energy to find, gather, and process it. How you find, gather, and process food is very different than how you find, gather, and process gold, which is very different than how you do it for labor. Derek's provided several resources for those interested in learning more, and you can find links to these things in the show notes. Before the heart of our conversation, however, the first half of today's episode, part one, is about the non-economic topics of music and musical theater, I'm a classically trained singer, and then solar panels and electric cars. Part two next week is entirely academic. If you like what you hear, 
then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons get super early access to almost every episode, and they also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, and they support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources, among other things. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, on to my conversation with Derek Ross. Enjoy. Okay, hear me? I can, yes. All right. Derek, thank you so much for coming on. It is really nice talking with you. I have, we have spoken many times in Facebook Messenger and on intro, so thank you for coming on and taking the time to talk with me. Oh, that's very welcome. What else do you do in a wet Sunday? And <laughs> okay. Um, so the first thing I want to ask you is you are an actor, and I believe it's safe to say a singer. And I'm curious to hear about that. I, do you know that I sing? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Well, um, it's just something I've always done. I mean, um, I've never done it for cash. It's always uh, been for fun. But I started at school, and I think with, well, a few minor exceptions, I haven't really stopped in the last uh, 40 years or so. Wow. And uh, the sort of roles I get uh, nowadays in uh, musical uh, theatres are a little bit different from uh, what I, I got as a, a young man, but it's still just as entertaining for me anyway. don't know what the audience would think, but I enjoy myself. And are you trained in any way? No, not really. I generally just uh, take chorus parts and small parts. I think um, the most recent thing that I did uh, sounds a lot better than I guess it really was, but uh, we did uh, Cavalivia Rusticana in uh, the Bunenberg Opera House, which was a bit of a change for me because I'm normally used to doing either musicals or comic opera in English. So uh, the first time I had to sing through something classical in Italian, but uh, when it comes to foreign languages, Italian is definitely one of the easier ones, I think, for English speakers to at least uh, make a, a reasonable attempt at pronunciation on. So, um, yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. And what was the name of this show? Cavalleria Rusticana. It's a 19th century Italian opera. It's basically a, a big melodrama. It's got all the normal operatic things, you know, sort of jealousy, murder, you know, illegitimate pregnancies and all the rest of it. It all compressed into one act, so uh, it, it doesn't waste any time. Okay, and what uh, what do you really enjoy as far as shows and, and music? And Well, what I normally uh, enjoy doing is um, the comic operas, Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, sort of mm. And basically because, uh, hey, it is in English, and um, most audiences enjoy things more when it's in their native language. And B... It's got a lot of well, very 19th century jokes, let me say. So uh, they're not exactly going to make you fall about laughing, but they're amusing. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, uh, Gilbert was quite clever in his in his writing. You know, if, if you like witty writing, then it's it's pretty good. And uh, Sullivan's music, well, um, it's a, it's a taste that uh, um, different people have different opinions on. But uh, for myself, I, I think he was pretty good. Okay. Um, I, I don't know it very well, but uh, the one thing I know, the one thing I know rather well by Gilbert and Sullivan is uh, I am the very model. I pirate the Penzance, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the popular one. That's the popular one. Well, that's, um, it is a good song. There's no doubt about it. Hence why, you know, people have done so many sort of takeoffs of it and whatnot. Gilbert thought uh, he'd probably, nobody would miss them if they, if they were gone, so to speak. Basically, because I mean, the Mikado is very much about crime and punishment in a, a lot of ways, and uh, particularly about sort of the fact that quite often the punishment does not fit the crime. The idea that uh, basically, if you're looking for people to execute, this is these are the people. So, of course, that's, uh, that's been used quite a lot as well in uh, sort of modern political life or whatever to talk about people who are like. That's the Mikado? 
Yep, the Mikado, yes. Which is, um, it's, in a sense, it's about, uh, it's, well, let me see, it's set in Japan. It's really about the law, and, which was Gilbert's hobby horse, maybe. And he was trained as a lawyer, and uh, he used a lot of legal reasoning in, in his operas, basically showing how absurd the law often can be. And in the Mikado, things are pretty absurd. Basically, a man, uh, um, for reasons which uh, make some sense within the opera, um, ends up becoming the head executioner, uh, mostly because he's been um, condemned to, to die by beheading. And the townspeople um, want him to, to be the, the beheader because uh, none of them can be punished for a crime until he's executed. And he can't execute himself, of course, as a as head executioner. So it's quite a, a clever way of, um, of resolving a problem for for them. Mm. Um, uh, the the uh, I'm a very model. The one um, which was from Ruddy Gore and often used in uh, pirates, which was it doesn't really matter. Which uh, again is sung so fast that generally speaking, you've got to be. Listening pretty carefully if you're actually going to hear the words. And in fact, the song itself makes uh, fun of that fact. You know, the words don't really matter because you can't hear them. Uh Interesting. And it's not just the listener, the challenge for the listener. It's the challenge for the person saying it. You have to have... Absolutely. I mean, that's it's intense. It is very intense. In fact, there's a a song by Weird Al Yankovic called Hardware Store. Hardware Store. And in the middle of the song is the bridge where he just runs through a ridiculous list of products. Like he worships a hardware store. Like that's like Disney World for him. And so he, he, then he like lists, look at all this stuff. Like he's in the store and he says, look at all this stuff. And then he lists, he goes through this like, I, I'm actually doubting that he actually did it without, you know, speeding it up or something. But maybe, but but on the other hand, he's done for some pretty extraordinary stuff. So maybe I don't know. But I can't do it. I can't no. like, even practicing as hard as I can. I cannot say it clearly. So, oh, I know. Um, what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I'll 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 share that with you later. Um, oh, absolutely. Well, a pretty amazing guy. I, I must admit, I uh, keep my heart off him. Yeah. Himself able to do are very impressive. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's. Yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for him. I really, I really like him a lot, and he puts on a good show too. He's very, he's a lot of fun. Um, so okay, last question about um, theater and music. Has your tastes changed since? Um, are your diff- tastes now different than they were when you were younger? Um, well, a little bit. I think uh, if you take my wider uh, taste in music, sort of from pop through to. Um, you know, the classical. It has changed from the point of view that I, I now have a bit more respect for uh, music of the 1970s than I did when I was growing up. I, mm. I always thought, I liked what was done in the 1960s when I was like, you know, like double the age of 10 sort of thing. I also liked what was done in the 1980s, um, you know, when I was sort of in my 20s, 30s. But yeah, I was never very impressed with most of what uh, went on with the 1970s music. I think now I have slightly changed my opinion on that, just from the point of view that um, there was actually a reasonable amount of good music done in that time. It, it's just that uh, you know when you're actually living in the time, you get exposed to everything, and there was a lot of bad music, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking back, you know, I can see there's some stuff that definitely I, I, I like better now than I did then. I don't know that my musical tastes have changed hugely over the years. I mean, I quite like uh, rock music. I I do like um, traditional folk music a lot. Not so much the people who write music in the the folk tradition, but you know, I I mean yeah, actually the sort of the the older nineteenth and eighteenth century stuff that uh, people uh, play. So you know, stuff like I don't know, Steel Eye Stand or airport convention or the you know, various Scottish uh, groups like you know, the Corries or the Calmans. I wasn't so familiar with them when I was uh, younger, but I yes, I, I have grown to like them a lot over the years. 
I'm, I'm pretty eclectic uh, as far as music goes. I mean, uh, there is, you know, some good in just about any you know, area if you look for it. And there's some bad. It's, uh, it's just a question of going for the good and avoiding the bad when you go down to it. I mean, I'm just as likely to sort of listen to ABBA as I am to uh, mm-hmm. Zeppelin type of thing. I, I wouldn't say I have tastes that are uh, uh, particularly specific. I, I don't really love any genre of music or hate any genre particularly. I would just say there are probably fewer country songs that I like than uh, you know, than, than ones I dislike. But uh, if you look around, you'll find good music anywhere. Okay. I'm a classically trained singer, and so, but I don't, I don't choose to listen to classical music. I enjoy it, I can respect it, but I don't choose to listen to it. And I, and I can enjoy singing it too. I don't, but it's kind of, it's kind of, this is not exactly right, but just kind of roughly, it's kind of more of a technical exercise, a technical excitement, you know, a technical. It's it's exciting because I can do it, as opposed to I think it's beautiful. I mean, that's really rough, but just kind of but I, I kind of wish that I was more trained with more popular concentration than you know in a way it was good because in a way it was really good because I think being trained classically has made me a more you know it gives you more flexibility and power but on the other hand I wish I focused more of that more deliberately on music that I really wanted to focus on rather than just classical so yeah. anyway I think, yeah, that's that's a teaching focus again. Though I know um, I have a, a music teacher friend in Calgary who, um, you know, again like yourself, classically trained, and you know she'll she'll keep you absolutely right as far as singing opera is concerned. But she also fronts uh, you know a rock cover band, so um, she changes her voice style to do that. Uh, there's mm-hmm. no doubt. You know, and uh, but when she does, she sounds as if she you know was made to, to front a rock band. And yet, if you hear her, uh, you know, uh, doing a uh, as pure soprano, because that's basically what she she can do, then she sounds great at that too. Yeah. That's actually that's actually much closer to the point that I wanted to make is that she can yeah. sing like she's destroying her voice, but not destroy her voice. Like she knows how to sound like she's singing rough in a way that doesn't actually hurt her voice. That's what classically trained gives you. Exactly. <clears throat> Yeah, like Pat Benatar, I believe, is classically trained, and she sings really rough in some of her songs in a good way, in, in a good style. But I think, I think you know, being classically trained allows you to do that. And actually, yeah. in order to... The, the, I can sing really bad. You have to be really well... You have to be a really good singer to sing yeah. super bad. Like you know, hold like a dissonant note, like purposefully. You know what I mean? Like you, I'm like I'm realistic. Yeah, yeah. And I am working on a quiz related to economics, having nothing to do with music. And I compose the questions and the good and the correct answers and the explanations. And I have a, a friend who I actually would suspect that you would know. John Wilson. His name is his own intro. Um, he's a lawyer. And he's a super smart guy, and he writes the wrong answers. And some of the wrong answers are so wrong they're like comically wrong and i'm like this guy has to be really smart to be that dumb you know like that because he writes the wrong answers he's supposed to fool people he's supposed to so i don't know it's just really funny to me um anyway okay all right great so if there's anything else you want to say regarding music um say it and then uh, i'm going to move on to something else absolutely no there's nothing really i mean i i really enjoy what uh, i'm singing i'm not the world's greatest singer I generally sing in tune. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not classically trained, so um, I I have to be careful with uh, what I do. And my biggest problem is I only go up to E, and um, even uh, most of the baritone roles um, are a bit tricky for me. Really, it needs to be bass, otherwise uh, I'm I'm stuck. So you're a bass? You're a low baritone and a bass? Yeah, low baritone. Yeah, as I say, sort of the E, you know, uh, just above middle C is. Uh, Basically, I've got a break there. That's a drawback, and uh, wow. I guess it, okay. could, it could be trained out of me, sort of thing. Because I can, you know, I can do the, you know, the the E sharp and the F above it. But there's that point, and the, the problem is, as a, as a baritone, um, if you're doing solo parts, I think quite often baritones are expected to go up to, you know, E, F, even G, so occasionally. So um, yeah, there's quite a few parts which basically I can't do. Just because uh, I'd, I'd have to speak the, the top bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. 
But uh, on the other hand, I can get down to uh, uh, a D2, so that's that's pretty good. A D2, below the staff, below the base class? Below the base class, yeah, that's right. Whoa, okay, I cannot do that. I'm a, I'm a tenor one. I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm a high tenor two. Like, if oh, I really yeah. warm, if I, if I really warm up, I can be a tenor one. Um, but, but I can also, but I can also do counter tenor. I can also oh, yeah. do some, some, I used to be able to do it super high, like higher than my soprano friends. Wow. But, but I, I can still do it pretty high, but not quite that high anymore. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. That, that means most of the, you know, most of the, um, you know, the, 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 the general sort of like range of songs around, and you, you could, you know, do a pretty good stab at it. Your range is just right. For a lot of the, the male songs. Well, that's that. I, I mean, that 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 is good, but it's also even better that I know how to take a song and lower it. Like I, I have the audio technology, you know, knowledge to be able to take a song and then lower it a little bit to to make it what I need it to be. So, um, uh, okay, great. Uh, so I have another question, and this is just kind of a, a weird thing that I noticed on your timeline. I'm just curious to hear a little bit, a brief summary of the story, um, and then and then we'll get on to more proper economics. And that is. Uh, you did something really interesting with your house. You built a you you built a floor on top of your roof, but did not disassemble the roof until after the floor was built on top of it. Can you tell that story? Am I I believe I got that right, right? Oh right, I know what you're talking about. Yes, I'm actually uh, sitting in that floor now. Um, <laughs> Well, technically, that wasn't me. That was our uh, building contractor. But, um, sure. yeah, what happened was we moved into um, this house in uh, in Nova Scotia, which is a very nice house and in a lovely location on the banks of a, a river. Um, far enough back that we're not going to get flooded, but close enough that, yeah, it's at the bottom of the garden. And that was great. But the house is basically a 1940s um, house, so the insulation isn't great in it. Storage space isn't good in it, you know. And we came from a, a rather larger house in Calgary, so um, we needed some extra space. Uh, what we did was one part of the house had been already added on to in the 1970s and had been built as a, a one-storey uh, unit. So what we did was we added another storey on the top. And in order to do that, uh, basically we had to remove the... Um, existing roof and uh, put in you know, new rafters to take the new floor and uh, all the rest of it and build a second story on top. So um, that is basically uh, why uh, we, we built a, a floor instead of, uh, well, on top of a roof. But the, the roof did you know, was taken out uh, once the, uh, the new rafters were in place. But that added on uh, two extra rooms and a, a, a bit of storage. Partly because, again, we had 1940s plumbing. Uh, I am amazed that they managed to get a full bath and a wash and basin and a toilet bowl into a space which uh, was basically a large cupboard. Although <laughs> it was, as I say, quite impressive, but it really wasn't something that uh, I wanted to use. So um, we, uh, we knocked into uh, the next door bedroom and expanded the, the bathroom. But of course, that took a bedroom away and it was only um, uh, like a, a three-bedroom house anyway. So uh, we wanted to keep it as a three-bedroom house, which is why we wanted to do the extra floor. But that's uh, the joys of moving into uh, a new house, which is an old house, I guess. And mm. we've had a lot to do with it. Thing, the thing that I, I've been happiest with, uh, my wife liked the, uh, the, the new rooms and we've made good use of them. And um, we've basically been running uh, bed and breakfast here for the uh, last uh, few years and uh, met a whole lot of very interesting people as a result. It's pretty good. But uh, the thing that I like best in the way of improvements you've done is uh, you put solar panels on the roof um, oh, because nice. the, the, um, the electricity bills were quite high. And this house basically is all electric. So uh, I wanted to get them down. And looking at it, I was you know, looking at the returns that I was getting on my investments in the stock market lately. You know, they haven't been great over the last uh, few years. Um, and I thought, well, if I put the money into uh, solar panels instead, I could maybe reduce my electricity bill by more. And uh, that is how it's worked out. Basically, uh, I'm getting a better return off the solar panels in the roof than, than the money was giving me when, you know, it was part of my investments. So, um, 
that's great. We're now at the stage where basically we don't really pay an electricity bill. It's, uh, mm. it's a connection fee this, um, to the um, to the electricity network. Because I, I didn't go down the, um, the the totally self-contained, you know, battery route. Instead, it, the solar panels. Basically, during the day, I supply electricity to the power company. During the night, they supply electricity to me. That way, I don't need to worry about looking after batteries or running out of power or whatever. But I still get the, um, the savings on the electricity. So that's, 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 what, that, that's interesting. It's like a, what do you call it? It's like a, a kind of a buffer stock in a way. You are yes. you are powering other people in exchange for them powering you. That's right. That's exactly it. It means that the um, the power company doesn't need to run their um, well quite so many of their. Uh, high-cost power uh, stations, you know, the natural gas quit and uh, run-up stuff during the day because my electricity is going uh, out to people who are sort of cooking and whatever at home. And then in the evening, well, I don't need to worry about batteries because um, basically the, the power is coming back in to me. I mean, I, that may change the future because one of the annoying things is I am pretty rural here and we do get power cuts, not often, but um, at least once, uh, once a, a year just because of snow in the lines or whatever. It's all above ground um, electricity supply here, you know, and when the trees grow over, and there's an awful lot of trees in Nova Scotia, so they grow over, then, um, yeah, they, they lie in the line and break them every now and again. So it would be nice to have batteries so we didn't have to worry about that. But uh, that's for the future. Oh, hmm. that. Interesting. The other thing we have done just recently, and we've only done it last month, is... Um, we uh, we capitalised on it a little bit further by getting an electric car, so oh. um, that basically has been run off the solar panels as well. So what uh, what, uh, what kind? Uh, a Hyundai, yeah. Hyundai. A Hyundai. Okay. Yeah. Purely electric um, or or hybrid? No, it's totally electric. It's um, it's it's basically it's a Kona, but they've replaced the the petrol engine with a uh, with an electric motor. It's fine. I mean, yeah, no complaints about about the performance and whatnot. It's really good. The range is a bit less than that petrol one. Yeah, that's fair enough. But generally speaking, I mean, I'm most of my stuff is, you know, I, I'm not doing long trips. In it. If I want to go a long way, I fly anyway, you know. So um, it's good for uh, running about. It'll take me up to Halifax, which is about an hour and a half uh, from me, and is the, even the big city in, in Nova Scotia sort of thing. Where you might want to go if you, you, you know, yeah, want to go and out the theatre or whatever, and you know, if the car takes me there and back, great, fine, I'm happy. Okay, great. Um, uh, okay, well, why don't we move on to? Uh, can you describe your thinking before you understood MMT or real world, real, you know, real reality economics, real world economics? I do. Um, basically, I, I have always been interested in um, how the economy works, just because as a, a long-term uh, fan of engineering, so to speak, I like to know how everything works, if possible. So I started uh, looking into economics as a, a happy amateur, you might say, back in the 1970s. And at that time, um, you know, the, uh, the Keynesians were still basically in charge, but they were losing their grip. And, you know, the, um, the more modern neoclassical um, economists were, were beginning to, to hold sway. So most of what I learned at the time, it made some sense. But I found that, um, in particular, money wasn't well explained. You know, I, I read what uh, you know, Milton Friedman had to say at the time, and I couldn't see the driving force behind it. I could see how the equations worked. I couldn't see how the cause and effect worked, so to speak. And that was the big issue. So I, I wasn't particularly happy with that. As part of my reading, you know, I, I read um, you know, Adam Smith's Wealth and Decent and so forth. And I quite liked what, what Smith had to say generally. I know he's generally thought of as a, a rather a right-wing writer, but um, when you actually read it, the thing I always think with Adam Smith is that the problem isn't so much Smith himself, it's his fans. He's a lot less right-wing than they are. Um, 
you know, it, it does become apparent when you actually read what he has to say, as opposed to, uh, you know, what, as I say, his his fans generally have to say. But the the good thing I did get out of that was classical economists like Adam Smith concentrate a lot on um, natural resources. They don't just talk about capital and you know, labor, as you might suspect if you know if you you look at what uh, most Marxists have to say about economics and what most neoclassical economists have to say about it too. But um, the the traditional economists like Ricardo and and Smith and the physiocrats generally, what they say, generally speaking, is is still the case. It it gave me the idea at the time, certainly, that in economics there are two sorts of goods. There's the ones that men can produce, the ones we make ourselves, and the ones which, although they may be essential, we can't produce. You know, the things that are, in a sense, given to us by nature. You know, so for instance, you know, the ground we walk on, the the energy that comes from the sun and so forth. And these are things which we we need, absolutely. But we can't make them. We can only collect, you know, what's available already. And that's not to say that, uh, you know, it's not, uh, we don't need things that we make as well. We absolutely do. But there is this, difference between um, things that we must have but don't make and things which we must have but we do make. And I think that that was the the big thing that I I took out of um, what I read certainly before um, I came across MNT. Because of that, that's why I I quite like my readings from uh, you know, Henry George and so forth about you know why um, it is important to uh, to distribute items you know sort of in a just manner. I think the the fact is that we're all born into a world which was there before there were men, you know, and which uh, although we have changed it, we didn't really create it in the first place. And it does seem unjust that, you know, uh, in a sense, because of that, we don't, although we're born in, we don't uh, get to um, make use of some parts of it because somebody who was born earlier sort of grabbed it first, so to speak. Hmm. Um, so because of that, you know, I, I, I took out of that the classical economist and Henry George, the importance of the idea of rent. We we collect things basically. We are, we are people who collect things, and um, we don't have well, we don't have much option in some cases, but to uh, collect what is we are and what we are allowed to. And because of the uh, the private ownership of certain uh, you know parts of the natural world, we can't collect some things that are essential to our survival. You know, we can breathe the air; it's free. Drinking the water, that's a bit trickier because, the, you know, the water may well belong to somebody else, you know. The air mm-hmm. comes to us, essentially. The water we, in a sense, have to go to. Yeah, we have to go to. It's on somebody's land. And perhaps that land, uh, you know, the owner doesn't want to share their water with, with other people. You know, it does happen. Yeah, it's it, it was an important way of looking at the world. And... Um, because of that, I, I did see why taxation was important in particular. I didn't understand taxation in the same way that I did after I came across MNT. But even at that time, I, I could see that basically there isn't a lot of difference between a rent and a tax from the point of view that you know they, they're both collecting something, collecting money, uh, generally speaking, from uh, one person to another. And the collector doesn't necessarily do that much work in collecting the money from the uh, the tenant or the, the taxpayer. And not as much work as the taxpayer or, or tenant might have to do to actually um, you know, uh, collect the money themselves to, to give to the other person. So, um, yeah, that, that was basically my thinking. Um, one of the things that 
uh, does come out of that is that you know rents and taxes in many ways are very similar sort of things. If you basically increase the amount of money that's uh, spent on taxes, there's less left to spend on rents. So the possibility of um, well, maybe the possible is the wrong word, but the the the, the potential is there for uh, uh, to make the, the economy run better by um, increasing taxes and reducing rents. And if uh, the one does the other, then you can basically you know, fund the government using the the old uh, ideas uh, without you know necessarily costing the. Uh, the general public much more than um, they would have to pay if there were no taxes at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm not explaining that very well, but yeah, the the idea is that taxes and rents basically come from the same place, and if you increase one, they're going to reduce the other. Um, that, does it make sense? Uh, well, it, it it hopefully will make more sense. Um, but let me ask for, for for now. Let me ask, uh, what was the timing between each? Meaning, what was the sequence of what you learned when? What you learned what when, you as far as as far as which you discovered first and which influenced oh, yeah. the other, and so on. Okay. To give a bit more of a timeline, um, I think I, I got my first basic economics set education, you might say, just in the, the, the late 1970s when I was uh, doing an engineering course and we were looking at, um, you know, sort of time discounting on uh, money, you know, when you're looking at costing uh, things. I uh, read on my own, say, the uh, Adam Smith stuff at the beginning of the 80s and not long afterwards I came across the ideas of Georgism in the... Uh, Public Library in Dundee in the, the early 1980s. Um, I'd already been sort of primed, in a sense, by looking around Dundee, which is a, an industrial city in the UK in the early 1980s, and like many, you know, had a lot of very rough spots, which had, you know had at one time been warehouses and whatever, and now weren't. And it always struck me as strange that the uh, property taxes at that time were set up so that. You only paid uh, a property tax on a building that was complete. Which seems strange to me because it was incentivizing people to destroy buildings in order to reduce their tax bills. You know, and that's exactly what people did. Yeah, know? actually, actually, if I may, a quick aside, which is, uh, yeah. I have a contractor, a friend who's a contractor, and he avoided the consequences and costs of new construction by destroying a home for his daughter and building a new one, like destroying an old home and building a new one for his daughter, but he left one wall standing, which legally made which legally made it not new construction. <laughs> so he could get away with avoiding all of those things. So go on. It is, it is crazy what uh, the incentives do. I mean, they, they really do work taxation incentives, but they don't always use the result that uh, they were intended to by the legislators, let us say. But uh, they absolutely work. Yeah, they absolutely do. And as I say, it was obvious to me in you know the uh, the city of Dundee at the time that um, you know they, it really wasn't working very well. Which is part of the reasons why I was reading up to try and find out a bit more about um, how. I mean, I now understand you know that uh, the right way to do it really is um, you don't tax the building that goes onto the land. You tax the actual land itself because yeah, people can destroy. Uh, the building if they want to um, uh, avoid tax. And that's not really a good thing because, you know, buildings are useful um, even if they do need to be maintained. But they can't really destroy the actual location. You know, it, it's there. And if they, if they don't want to pay tax on it, then they should sell it to somebody, you know, who is prepared to pay the tax on it, so to speak. Because that way the land stays in use. And, um, you know, it's, it's like earning how much standing money it's producing, you know, real resources of people's use. But, um, yeah, as I say, it was that sort of thing that really uh, pushed me to start um, reading that. And I found that very interesting. Um, I, I I do see why uh, Georgism does talk about 
um, the land rent so much. It's a bit of a misnomer to say it's the only thing because if you if you actually do read Henry George's work on it, it really does apply to all rents. So um, you know the the rents that bank make banks make when they they rent out money to you, the rents which uh, you know patent owners make when they uh, license uh, the use of their patents. It's all rent, and um, in principle, it could all be taxed. The only reason, really, for um, uh, concentrating so much uh, on land tax by most Georges, and it's a good reason, I think, is that um, it's very difficult to hide the ownership of uh, of land. You know, the land is there. Even if you don't know who the owner is, you know that somebody has to own it. You know, you know that it's not just sitting there unused um, and unowned. Because of that, it's quite easy to, to foreclose on it. It's a bit more difficult to um, foreclose on uh, things which are movable off to uh, tax havens. You know? Bits of information as opposed to, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, as I say, the, um, the Georges they tend to push the land uh, tax thing, basically because it's one of the biggest sources of rent in the economy. But uh, they're fully aware that it's not the only source of rent. I mean, if, you know, you wanted, I could certainly go into detail about other um, big sources, um, you know, from broadcast spectrum, you know, through, as I say, to um, IP rents as well. But, mm. yeah, but uh, if anybody's interested in that, I'm sure they can go and have a look. Well, uh, um, okay, so you discovered Georgism long before you discovered yep. the other stuff. So I wonder, long. I mean, you know, describe how you discovered MMT and then also. Okay. How did it validate Georgism, and what what did it reveal that might not be correct about Georgism? Like, and how did how did it, how did they enhance each other? How did they criticize each other? So, okay. Well, and um, the path to to get to MMT, basically, as I say, I, I was fairly happy with um, Georgism's um, explanation of you know how how rents uh, and taxes work generally. What I wasn't quite so happy about is it, it still doesn't really explain money that well. Things like inflation and so forth, it's not clear how that could come about as a result of, you know, the, the, the sort of stuff that Henry George talks about and Adam Smith as well. Smith actually, in many ways, is better on money. And um, George didn't really concentrate on that very much. And that's fine. I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we all have to choose what we think is important and talk about it. And he did, and um, you know, as I say, I, I'm very happy with it. Aligns with my understanding of uh, what works in economics, but it really is about the real resources side of economics, and it is also, I would say, more about the private sector side of economics. It doesn't really explain the role of government particularly, and it it doesn't really explain the role of money either. It does use money from the point of view you are talking about rents and taxes but it doesn't again it doesn't give that driving force particularly I think that is missing from uh, a lot of the uh, sort of mainstream uh, economic story and uh, if, so, if, if I um, may I'd like to interject one one thing which is yep. taxing is all obviously done with money so if you can change the meaning of money then you basically have infinite control over you know, you, you can't control that. The, the Georgist ideas can't be controlled if you don't have control over the definition of money. Like, if money can change out from under you, then... I understand what you're saying, Jeff. What I would say is that it is possible to change the definition of money. For instance, um, you know, in, in feudal times, if you had to uh, provide, you know, sort of like, say, 20% of your egg production and that sort of thing, then the egg is basically the rent that's being uh, given to the, uh, the landlord at that point. The, the thing is, yes, I mean, we, we do normally think of rents nowadays in terms of money, but that's because most of what we do is collecting money and, and you know, pa- pass, passing it on to other people. There aren't so many of us who are specifically, you know, sort of like growing cabbages in the the back garden and then having to, you know, hand over uh, 20 cabbages a month or whatever it is to the um, uh, the bank. But the fact is that the rents don't have to don't have to be paid in money. 
there is a, an argument for saying that whatever you use to pay a rent or, or a tax is money. But I mean, you get situations like in ancient times um, with uh, Egypt, where uh, ancient Egypt had two forms of taxation, neither of which were monetary, the one being forced labor, or, well, let's say, you know, labor as tax, corvée as they call it, um, which um, means that basically, yeah, you don't have to pay the king, but you do have to uh, work, you know, sort of 50 hours uh, out of the year for him or whatever it happens to be, you know. So the thing is that uh, both money and rent and taxes, they don't have to be, like, based on pounds or dollars or whatever. They generally are nowadays, but historically, you know, we can see that they haven't always been. Okay, so uh, forgive me for distracting you from uh, when you discovered MMT and how they informed each other, how Georgism and MMT informed each other. Uh, how they informed? Well, um, first of all, if I just finish off by saying about my path, because I wasn't that happy with what Georgism was saying about money, uh, you know, I, I have always kept looking because I'm always interested in learning more from uh, what's been out there. And I came across Steve Keen, first of all, and his ideas on uh, banking and money, which um, I still you know, think are, are pretty good. But that led me through uh, to uh, discover you know, Stephanie Kelton and then the uh, you know the the other MMTers at the time as well. Around two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. Okay. So um, I looked into that, and I I very much like the story and. Um, you know, the, the sort of the, the basic ideas uh, behind MMT, those did explain money very well to me, I thought. Basically, we're still back in the realms of collecting things for uh, ordinary people. It's just that we're collecting government tokens nowadays instead of, you know, collecting, you know, food in the wild or or apples in the trees or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I particularly liked, you know, the the... the the full explanation that they gave. That tied in well because it explained to me how um, how the the money thing worked, both for landlords in the private sector and for the government. It also explains a lot to me about how the things work with the foreign sector in both imports and, and exports, uh, where we, we basically have people who are not they're not taxed, and yet they still regard the dollar or the pound or whatever it is as being valuable, even though they themselves have no taxes to pay. The basic reason they do that is because um, you know they, they they can exchange that token which they cannot create for goods which they do value and which uh, you know they do require. And that that tied in quite well with Georgism because it explained how the rental side sort of worked. I mean, why is it that, you know, modern landlords don't want, you know, so like 10% of the grain harvest or, you know, 500 hours of labor uh, from you in payment for use of their land? It's because um, they can get it as money instead um, as the, uh, the tokens which they need to pay taxes. which so they themselves, you know, um, are paying to a higher authority in the same way that their tenants are, are paying them. And when you look at it like that, then you can actually look at the whole um, of society as group, different groups of people who are basically collecting things and passing them on to other people because they need them or consuming them themselves, again, because they need them. You know, So um, as I say, when I uh, came across those ideas in 2008, Yes, that made a lot of sense. And it's covering a different area of economics from uh, the Georgist side, which really is uh, more about the private sector in a sense and how it distributes um, resources. But when you add MMT into the mix, you've now got like a complete economy or you know, a complete description of a modern economy because you've got uh, the government sector as well. You know? mm. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it all made sense to me. And basically, you can look on, from a Georgist point of view, you can look on the government as being the prime landlord for the country as a whole, you know, and the, the taxes which it levies as being, um, you know, the rent you pay for living in the country. Mm-hmm. So for, you said from a what point of view? 
it could be viewed that way? Oh, I was saying from a, from a George's point of view, George's. you can look on MMP as um, describing how the, the, the landlord is, uh, sorry, the government is the prime landlord, you know, who basically uh, expects to be uh, paid in, uh, in its tokens for the use of its uh, resources. That, that kind of implies that Georgism is too narrow, meaning it's accurate within its yeah. own world, but it's like, it's, like, it's like when you see descriptions of banks create money, yeah. but you don't pull out and see the foot. It's basically being too, too narrow-focused. It's basically, it doesn't matter how accurate my theories are within my own home. If I don't leave my home, then I'm not considering all of the effect that the entire world has on on me. It, it, you know, it, it's 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 one thing to be accurate within your own bubble, but if you yeah. don't take if you don't pull back and see how the rest of the world impacts that bubble and how you how you impact the rest of the world, then how meaningful can that theory be? Even if it's even if it's perfect within its own within itself. Yeah. So like. So uh, can can you can you address that? So so Georgism seems accurate within its own self, but it doesn't pull back to see the larger picture. And I and actually that's kind of yeah that's kind of representative of that. of many of our problems that yeah. you know people don't pull out and see the larger picture. Climate change, perfect example. You know we yeah. can just keep doing what we're doing, but yeah, you don't pull back and see the larger picture that's going on. No, I agree with that. I think that's uh, uh, quite a reasonable way of looking at it. Um, I think in, in some ways, you know, Georgism is a lens as well, in some ways. I'm saying Georgism, but I mean, basically it's, it's, it's classical economics. It's a different way of looking at things. And the, the, the big difference between the classical economics of Henry George and uh, our modern economics is that natural resources were built into the, uh, the, the, sort of the, the 19th century view of economics. You know, when we say land, we're not just talking about, you know, the ground you stand on. Uh, we're talking about, you know, the the light, the air, the um, all, basically the entire universe. What, what we would nowadays call natural capital or natural resources. And uh, even the, you know, even the frequency, the frequency like Internet, you know, frequency like, right. I, I, don't, I don't know the terminology for it, but, but basically, you know, you're allowed to use this bandwidth for television, for Internet or whatever. Exactly right. Yeah, and that's. Yeah, that's a, a perfect example of uh, of um, of the sort of thing that Georges would consider to be land, although it's mm. not what like um, you know you, you would normally mean by the term when you're you're using it in everyday conversation. And mm-hmm. um, it's basically about the natural resources. I I agree with what you're saying about the um, the fact that it's it's too narrow. I think it's a focus because. Um, in many ways, as I said, you can't expand the Georgist idea to include the government by basically saying the government is the prime landlord. And actually, if you look back to you know, like 1066 and you know, sort of the, the Norman conquest of England or whatever, that very much was the case. I mean, um, King William I saw himself as the, the landlord of, of the country, and there was a hierarchy going down from him, then, which made that very clear you know, landlords and sub-landlords all the way down to uh, the poor old peasant who was actually, like, uh, growing the, the potatoes or whatever. In some ways, it's, it's a question of how you look at it. But I do think that, um, as I say, Georgism did not explain money very well. MMT does. And that's why I think there's a, there's a real place for a synthesis there, you know? I know that uh, Warren Mosler certainly, um, although he's not a Georgist himself, uh, certainly the, the tax he normally talks about uh, the real estate uh, tax, and uh, yeah, most uh, most Georgists would be happy uh, to see that as a good tax.
Today I talk with Derek Ross on the basics of Georgism and its relationship to MMT. Derek's a Nova Scotia resident who's been a chorus member in theatrical productions for four decades in shows such as The Pirates of Penzance by Gilbert and Sullivan. He and his wife also run A Bed and Breakfast. Derek was especially helpful in providing feedback for an introductory presentation I developed early this year. Although unfortunately the presentation never came together, it has many valuable concepts and analogies I still use today. Derek and I met in the Facebook group Intro to MMT, which is very busy and has more than 6,000 people, and for which I'm a moderator. Derek first discovered Georgism and later the work of Steve Keen, which ultimately led him to MMT. A main insight of Georgism is that taxing land is a much more elegant way to make a system that's both fair and more difficult to exploit. Although humans can manipulate and destroy buildings, they can't eliminate the land those buildings are on. As an example, I have a friend who's a general contractor. He tore down an old house and built a new one for his daughter. However, he left one wall in the old building standing, which prevented it from being legally considered as new construction, thereby avoiding extra fees and newer regulations. Land as defined by Georgism is not just the earth, but conceptual like internet URLs and the bandwidth for television, radio, and cell phones. Taxes, or rents on that land, can be paid with money, such as interest for a bank loan or taxes for living in a country. They can also be paid with not money, such as by having to provide a certain amount of labor to the king each year or a percentage of the harvest. Going beyond Georgism, physics makes it clear that the most fundamental resource is energy. Resources and we are essentially forms of energy. In addition, all energy requires energy to find, gather, and process it. How you find, gather, and process food is very different than how you find, gather, and process gold, which is very different than how you do it for labor. Derek's provided several resources for those interested in learning more, and you can find links to these things in the show notes. Before the heart of our conversation, however, the first half of today's episode, part one, is about the non-economic topics of music and musical theater, I'm a classically trained singer, and then solar panels and electric cars. Part two next week is entirely academic. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons get super early access to almost every episode, and they also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, and they support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources, among other things. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, on to my conversation with Derek Ross. Enjoy. <laughs> 